We'd sit on the porch and we'd talk about life, whatever, but that was one of the things that I said to them is I was like, you know, everything in moderation. They're like, yeah, 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 like don't do too much. And I was like, no, even moderation. They're like, what? And I was like, go hard. Don't go hard all the time, you know? Decide when it's appropriate. When is it the right moment for you to go deep, to go there, you know? And otherwise, what is your homeostasis of moderation? And how, and another piece is presence, you know? Gift presence. Your presence is a gift. Being there, being aware, being considerate, being respectful. How are you being present? How are you showing up? Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. Anyone who's listened to this show for a while knows that a huge piece of the conversation around our place in time is the retrieval of previous cultural modes and forms and forms of wisdom that we have somehow jettisoned or simply forgotten in our march towards a modern apotheosis of the emancipated individual. And by that, I mean, of course, the wisdom of communities. That includes rites of passage. That includes what integral Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi used to call saging instead of aging, the honor and acceptance of the role of the twilight of one's life into the cultural macromolecule, an acceptance of the fact that if we are to move forward at all into the complexity our futures present us, then it will require a robust and resilient, and thus by necessity, diverse set of perspectives held together in a provisional bouquet, a kind of meta method of holding the truth of every single life together as an assemblage, seeing what fits, and notably also appreciating what doesn't, the rough edges, the missing pieces. Anyone who's taken apart a toaster or a VCR and put it back together with extra pieces knows what I'm talking about. You know that that thing is for a reason. You know it's there. What is it doing? And that's kind of where we are with party culture, with the celebration, the festival. And in fact, with culture in general, it's strange that people these days think of culture and art specifically as just the cream on top of the human experience. As if this whole military-industrial complex were not dependent upon the entertainment industry for its survival. As if orgasm isn't what makes evolution happen. It's not merely that culture is the intersubjective we space that provides a foundation for scientific inquiry and engineering and technological progress to even begin in the first place. It is also... That beauty is the motivator, the why of our lives. And anyone who's thrown an excellent party understands that these are a necessary function of the social ecosystem. And yet, our culture strangely disregards the celebrants, both within and without, disavowing or simply oblivious to the fact that just as every engine needs lubrication, the city will not function unless its constituent agents, the people that compose it, are allowed to flow between 
and maybe even innovate new states of consciousness. This is the balance that we're talking about when we talk about life as a process thriving on the edge of chaos. This is what life is. A loose weave, constantly undoing and redoing itself. That which merely builds upon itself in ordered pattern indefinitely is not life. It's a crystal. And a crystal, insofar as algorithms are concerned, is far less interesting and creative and productive and lucrative than a living system. So this conversation with Melina Gross and its enshrinement of creativity and play and celebration and release slots very neatly into, I think, one of the most important larger conversations that we can be having right now, which is how do we allow people to have a good time? How do we make sure that it's not just the ass-covering rhetoric of beer commercials that people party responsibly, but that we can see this as a vital function in the emerging noosphere that we accept, as the Greeks did over 2,000 years ago, embarrassingly, ecstasis as the doorway out of stasis. Now, obviously... Commercial culture has a way of co-opting all the good things and turning them into products. And I am not saying that we can simply party our way to a revolution. In fact, I've spent most of the last 13 years reminding people in festival culture that this is not the case. But insofar as life is an evolutionary learning process... And I think that's a fairly well-supported, rigorous statement, actually. Then nightlife is a kind of right life. And I'm super glad that we have folks like Melina Gross out there weaving together anthropology, art, business, social design, urban design, and the more humanistic dimensions of harm reduction, community and care because it takes all kinds folks and why are you here if not to have a good time this message brought to you by you actually patreon supporters thanks everybody who has been shaving off a negligible sum and feeding it to patreon.com slash michael garfield every month i am immensely grateful that this show can perform what it preaches, namely that every one of us is a group activity, <laughs> that it takes a village to raise a child because the child is a village. And I know some of you out there are not so hot on the subscription thing, so I've just switched it up a little, and I've started Venmo at Future Fossils if anyone would like to make a one-time donation a kind of tip jar for the riffs. If you like this, if you find value in these conversations, well, I'm going to be a dad, so every dollar helps. That's right, I'm going to have a kid and finally make good on all this rhetoric to be good ancestors. I get to put the theory into practice. I've known about this for months, actually, and I, I can't believe it's taken me this long to bring it up on the show. But... My own sense of time is changing 
as a father-to-be, and my thoughts about time and about our place in time are evolving also. And I'm honored that I get to share this quest with you, this journey of discovery into a deeper understanding, a deeper mystery. Anyway, I love you guys, and much more on that soon, I'm sure. But for now, here is the most wonderful Melina Gross and I at Arcosanti, Arizona, discussing her graduate work on the Party Professionals Toolkit, an international project for a planetized human culture, an open source platform, a kind of ribosome of best methods for the instantiation of our celebration. Enjoy. And thanks. So we are at Arcosanti, Arizona, and it is Convergence 2018, and I'm here with Melina. You're going to hear some bells in the background. Those are the world-famous Arcosanti bells, the ceramic and, and bronze bells that they've sold all over the world. So uh, this is the quietest place we could do this because there's a big event going on right now. And Yeah, it appears that as soon as we started recording, it just got much louder with the peripheral noise. <laughs> yeah, there's wind and such. But at any rate, this is, as usual, I like these in-the-wild recordings because they, they give a sense of place. And as far as this being an archaeological project, I feel like that's really key to like reconstructing the acoustic environment in which these creatures inhabited uh, but at any rate, this was a this was a spur of the moment decision to to talk to you because you were telling me about your dissertation about party culture, and I was so inspired. I was like, I knew I had to have you tell the world about it. So, what are you working on right now? <laughs> uh, so I'm working on my MFA in theater arts entrepreneurship and management at ASU. And my focus is in community development within party culture, specifically community-led party culture. So there's a bit of a socioeconomic warfare that's taking place in our party scenes. There is a corporate interest that is creating these high-class, disnified versions of leisure and nightlife. And that is affecting our independent growth of community-led um, experiences for celebration, for music, for sharing. And so much like there's gentrification happening in a lot of realms, there's gentrification happening in these realms as well. So I am looking at what our urban nightlife scene can learn from Burning Man culture, from festival culture, and what we can do as a community to bring uh, those experiences more full-time to our urban spaces. Mm. And so how is this taking shape? Because you, you told me that this is not your typical dissertation, that this is not just a, a, like a, a tome that you're going to s- slap on someone's desk, <laughs> but that it's, it's appropriate to the, the time in which it's being created. 
Yes. So this is technically an applied project, which means that we, instead of a dissertation, we do a thing. So we make and produce something. And a lot of people will do an actual performance or something like that, but I want something that's going to last, that's going to have legs that can continue. So I'm doing a multimedia website that is kind of like a dissertation in web form. So I am traveling the country interviewing uh, people who are participants of community-led party culture across the country and uh, gaining their perspective on um, how they bring people in, how they're developing their community, what the struggles are that they're facing, what they're doing well that they'd like to share with other people. And it's all going to live on this website that will include videos, images, these live recordings as I travel through the country, uh, interacting with different people who are inspiring. And I'd really like, you know, a lot of my work is focused on validating party culture. I have probably every single professor that I interact with tells me not to use the word party in my work. <laughs> and for that, I'm like, great, it's actually in the title of my work. So, <laughs> you know, and that just that shows a stigma right there. But um, to call it nightlife isn't appropriate. These things don't take place at night. To call it celebratory isn't uh, specific enough. It's kind of ritualistic also. Yeah, you know, it's, it's humans have been gathering and celebrating and letting loose in this way for thousands of years. As long as we've been gathering, we've been celebrating. And uh, I think that we've come to a place where the corporatization of our nightlife spaces, of our celebratory spaces, has gotten to a place where it becomes so homogenized and sterile that it's lost a lot of the soul and the magic. So when people think about nightlife, they often think bars, drinking, people getting drunk, people being rowdy, disrespectful, things like that. But there's also this other side of it that is incredibly beautiful and beneficial for society. You know, it offers this place for people to create, connect, express, to step outside of their day-to-day, which is a lot of what the purpose of Carnival and Mardi Gras and these ancient rituals of letting people completely let loose before a period of complete uh, restraint or giving up something. And there, you know, we don't have to necessarily do that within these specific time frames anymore. Things are much more fluid, things are much more open. We don't necessarily have the same class order that you know, says, all right, you get one day to do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> Your Saturnalia and the slaves are yes. going to serve by the masters. Exactly. Yeah. Well, if we don't let the slaves have their one day of just going wild, they might really turn on us. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, things have shifted, but we still have that root in us. So um, I want to gain a perspective because I've grown up between southern Utah and central Arizona for, you know, my whole life. And I know what I know about producing events and connecting with community, but I don't think I can really position myself as an expert unless I get the perspective of a lot of other people and gain you know, an understanding of what's happening on a national scale and eventually an international scale. But this project is meant to grow. So in the next couple of months, I'll be traveling to Detroit, New York, Seattle and New Orleans for Mardi Gras. Nice. I was like, you know, I'm just going to go into the belly of the beast and I'm going to do this and just see what this is all about. Um, going to each space for at least a week so I can really feel the place and do as many in-person interviews as I can. 
And through this, I hope to gain an idea and perspective on patterns that are happening across these communities. You know, where are the shared successes? Where are the shared difficulties? What can we learn from each other? But creating a platform for people to also um, be able to share their work with other people and for people to see what's happening in these communities and cultures that is valid, that is important, that is meaningful, that brings intention to why we gather as people more so than just, oh, let's drink a bunch of booze and get fucked up. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, because there's, it's different, you know, it's a whole different conversation on that, but. There's something about, uh, in hearing you talk about this, came up for me about the way that you say, oh, we, we don't have to do this on this one prescribed day every year anymore, which reminds me of the the thing about human sexuality is that we moved out of having like a mating season into having this sort of ambient eroticism that's just like perennial eroticism <laughs> all year and like everybody's kind of just in this weird buzzing tension all the time. And I wonder to what extent the... This is a tr like a universal trend with human beings as we, you know, there's there's a lot of the sort of myth of progress is the, you know, transcendence of space and time mm -hmm. and like breaking out of this cyclical pattern relationship with the organic rhythms of our body and our planet. And in a way, it almost feels like the fact that yeah, it's like we can eat sugar anytime we want now, but that's mm -hmm. not necessarily a good idea. Absolutely. And, and so, like, there's something about the manifestation of party culture right now that is uh, like willfully ignorant of the <laughs> reality of our biological rhythms, and that's like true at every level of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious what you think about that and what you see as the sort of differences between like a healthy acknowledgement of time mm -hmm. in party culture and an unhealthy sort of disavowal of time or like a, an insistence of a different kind of time. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so it actually brings me to a different aspect of the project, which um, I'm looking at developing the modern party ethos. So what does that look like as far as... Um, a community, as individuals, how we come together in these spaces and hold space for each other, hold space for ourselves. Um, and so I think that, you know, as a young person coming into these scenes, a lot of times it's just like, you know, blow it out of the water, first night, all the drugs, all the whatever, you know, do whatever you want. And like, but then you start to learn how to pace yourself. You start to learn how to moderate. You start to learn how to be more intentional and respectful in your actions and the way that you impact the event around you. Not necessarily everyone does that, uh, but I'm looking at, you know, what are kind of the, Burning Man has the 10 principles that has been an incredibly impactful guiding ethos for that community since 2004. And a point of constant argument also. Yes. But maybe that's, yeah. But, you know, what does that look like for other spaces? for, you know, these other places, for festivals, you know, what is what is our party ethos? What do we all unify and stand behind together as a community? And how do we guide other people? So I think a big piece of that is mentorship. Being in a university right now, I'm spending time with a lot of people under 25. And it's really interesting reconnecting to that place, uh -huh. you know, especially under 20. And just, it's inspiring to spend time with those students and it's also reminds me how important it is that we 
mentor those who are younger than us or just those around us or sharing our knowledge or whatever that might be. So I would say that mentorship or to each one, teach one is kind of something along that ethos. Wait, and to each one, teach one? Uh-huh, each Ooh. one, teach one, yeah. Okay. That's, I think that's part of the Africa burn ethos. That's a big one for them. Read some article about it. I think we should turn the 10 principles up to 11 in that oh, case yeah. and add, <laughs> add uh, each one yes. each one which is strangely also contains 11 but now I'm just being schizoidal mm. but, right so, I mean there's some that want consent to be the 11th principle holy crap it really yeah. is the unofficial 11th principle of Burning Man it's, mm-hmm. I guess it's sort of it's sandwiched in between sort of you know radical Inclusions so mm-hmm. all these other things. There's there is sort of an implied consent, but to make it explicit seems yeah. kind of timely. But also, so back to your question, I think that you know breaking the tradition of when things happen in a calendar mm-hmm. year and some unknown power deciding when we do what, it brings back the sense of agency mm-hmm. and self control and self moderation, but also just self knowing. And so it takes the power away from someone else telling you what to do and when into your own hands where Mm. you decide, you know. And if you decide to be an asshole, your community is going to check you. And you're probably going to have, you know, repercussions come from being an asshole in whatever way that people might say, hey, you know, check yourself. And hopefully. Because it doesn't always happen. (laughs) It doesn't always happen. But that's, you know, the difference of being part of a community or being a tourist in a situation you know are you part of this experience are you just stopping by and I think that there can be what I call the anonymous veil that people will hide behind and it happens a lot in really big festivals like Coachella where people will be ignorant and disrespectful and rude because no one knows them just because they're in that space of no one knowing who they are and be like, well, you're not going to remember me anyway, so whatever. Mm. And I think I'd like to shift some of that awareness of that accountability, and that's what you see happening more in these small gatherings, these intimate spaces. You have more accountability because you're going to see each other more often. On that point, just as a weird, like a tangent uh, from a personal account, I was uh, New Orleans Jazz Fest in 2005 when I was looking at the university there before Katrina. Mm-hmm. And uh, luckily, I was I was so freaked out. I had this weird uh, dread the whole time I was there. Like, I almost didn't get on the plane. And so I, I think that, I, you know, I was steered away from that whole situation. But while I was there in New Orleans, I went to the Jazz Fest. And uh, it was like a crowd of 100,000. It's like the biggest crowd I've ever been in. Like, over 100,000 people for, uh, like, Dave Matthews Band was headlining. And I was staying with a Dave Matthews fan at the time. And uh, we went there, and in this, cr- the densest crowd I've ever, not just the biggest, but the densest crowd. Mm-hmm. Because that, because that part of that, uh, the commodification of party is putting it inside a fence, right? The literal, like, the enclosure of the commons. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that, and then, of course, like, getting everyone completely trashed, uh, selling them stuff but once also, you've got them captive. I mean, it's also a, a sense of coping. 
Uh, of getting drunk as a way of being comfortable because you're in such an uncomfortable space yeah. that that disconnect actually helps you to assimilate uh-huh. into the you know into a space of feeling more comfortable because it's such an uncomfortable space. So it got even more uncomfortable <laughs> when uh, the people we were standing next to were clearly like some of the drunkest people I've ever seen, and this couple was having sex in the middle of the crowd. And everyone was like trying to give them a little bit of a birth, and then I forget which birth. one. Yes, <laughs> not that birth. Uh, B E. They had a. Uh, one of them threw up on the other one, and suddenly we're like, in the middle of this like, meat packing situation where every, like the whole crowd Meanwhile, is wobbling Dave, as yeah. this as these this couple is wobbling and, and other whole, people see a space it's like an, it's like yeah. an anti-mosh where it's like everyone is trying to keep a t- like three feet between them and, and this like puke fountain meanwhile dave matthews sings crash into me oh yeah i think yeah i think there's something uh he was probably singing about drinking at the time so yeah, that's not. That's not. I don't think that's what we. What we're trying to get back to, as a species. Like, mm-hmm. there's like the question of what is it we're celebrating, and why, and like why do we come together? It's not mm-hmm. just about feeling. There is that part of like just being a part of a crowd. Yeah. That we miss because Absolutely. we're all like these domestic pets living in our little boxes. In our individual vehicles and houses. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you're lucky, it's a Honda Element. And you can actually sleep in there. But uh, still, yeah, so what do you think about the purpose of party? Like, what, mm-hmm. do you, like, what do you think? Like, do we need a reason? Or is there a deep universal biological reason that we just dress up with rationale? Or what? Uh, so similar to the idea of uh, Bacchanalia and Carnival and these old rooted traditions is that we step outside of our monotony to step outside of our scheduled system of the everyday. Uh, I believe that leisure and unwinding and having the opportunity to connect with people in a different way than we do in our normal lives is so important. It breaks down boundaries, it breaks down walls, it breaks down assumptions of stereotypes when you are just thrown into the space with so many people who are different from yourself. Like, I was at a movement in Detroit this year, and it was the most diverse group of people I've ever seen in a music festival, as far as just um, scenes and styles and just people from all over the world, because it's very much this underground music lovers festival of, like, electronic dance music. And in those spaces, there's some sort of granting by we're already, we're here together, and so there's certain boundaries that are lowered. And offering that space for people to genuinely connect with each other, I think, is number one. Um, I think what's really powerful of what's happening, you know, if you think about it, this extension of Burning Man and music festivals uh, that's spreading across the world over the last, you know, 10 to 30 years, really, it's never happened in all of human history. This is a new phenomena. And through that, there's these global networks that are developing of, you have your festival community, you have these people that you'll see at these events, and you might see each other. You know, for example, you and I have shared at least five of the same festivals, but you live in Austin, I live in Arizona. Mm -hmm. You know, and we have a network of people we know across the United States, which connects to people we know in other countries, which means 
I can go to Chicago and I have friends to stay with because I met them at a festival. Right, yeah. And I think that that is something that's so exciting about what's happening in these spaces. And I think that there's a real opportunity to um, extend that magic into what's happening in our urban spaces on a more regular basis. Because I don't think that the typical bar culture, the typical venue culture is really the best we can do. I think we can do better. And I think that there's more ownership that we can take as participants of Burning Man and festival culture to thinking about how we're integrating in our urban spaces and really owning those spaces as well. Yeah. You know, this, this whole piece of it, talking about what can we bring back, there's a sense in, like the Tao Te Ching talks about people who are living in harmony with the Tao will hear, will be so con- sort of like content in their place in the cosmic ecosystem that they'll hear the chicken, like the rooster crowing from the next village over the hill and it won't incite, it won't spark curiosity about the people over there, that they'll feel content where they are. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, I mean, obviously that's a very sedentary way of seeing things. And, you know, my my question to you is like, how do you, part of this I think is that we've actually suppressed the nomad in the modern sedentary world. Mm-hmm. You know, and that the Romani, you know, quote unquote gypsy peoples of Europe are, and other, you know, some people, other peoples in Asia and other elsewhere are still like reasonably mobile across the national boundaries and artificial barriers that we've constructed. But they're still in this kind of uneasy tension with city people. And, mm-hmm. you know, as someone who is, transitioning myself from the 40 years in the desert like wandering from festival to festival to like settling down into a temple of science and getting a full-time job um it's this actually is not a new issue for me like how do we reconcile those two strains of humanity and do you think that if we succeeded in accomplishing like filling ourselves with what we're going to festivals and parties, mm-hmm. uh, what we're traveling to, to go to them for, do you think that we would even need this sort of broad international community support network? Yes. Yeah, you, think that, <laughs> you don't think one replaces the other? You don't think we'd just get like totally comfortable at home? No, okay. I think that one can... Uh, support and inspire the others. So, I mean, if you want to get into master plans of, you know, what this is all about for me personally is that this project, the Party Professionals Toolkit, is just the start. This is the seed. Uh, But where I see us really creating impact in our communities is through um, ownership of property and developing the venues that support these kinds of visions but not only developing venues, but developing a network of venues. So venues that are across the United States, that are connected digitally, that are connected socially, that are connected through a nonprofit that these um, communities feed into, but the nonprofit feeds back to those communities for art projects, for funding, for whatever, but it can also become this skill-sharing space. So, I mean, I, I see that there can be this 
it's like the next level from what we're doing in our festival communities of like bringing it home, but not only bringing it home, but keeping it connected. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't, you know, I have a lot of my own thoughts of how that can play out, but I do believe in that vision of it's kind of the next step of these temporary spaces is our permanent spaces. And not becoming isolated or insular in that, but remaining connected to these other places and still inspiring that migration, mm -hmm. but maybe not on such a specific annual basis as you do for these specific festival events or Burning Man. It would once again open up that agency of, yeah, you know what, my friend in Chicago is working on this thing. He needs someone who can program LEDs with Arduino. I have that skill set, and I got this grant. I'm going to go out there and help him with this project. Mm -hmm. You know, that yeah. kind of a thing, of keeping it very connected because... Kind of like uh, visiting yeah. faculty. Yeah. <laughs> that, and that's actually, uh, that's a good question for you, given that you're studying all of this within the academic environment, because, you know, our mutual friend, Mitch Mignogna, who's been on the show, he and I talk constantly about the convergence of festival culture and the academic world, you know, mm -hmm. and how it seems like the you know as as the their university becomes sort of somewhat delegitimized as an institution by the availability of information and learning online, mm -hmm. uh, as well as the crises of authoritative legitimacy that comes up with that. Yeah. Uh, then you also have this growing interest in the you know eighteen to twenty five year old kids that are now like. You know, 28 to 35, or 38 to 45, and as you age, it's not like you want to give up parties. You just want the parties to be more nourishing. Yeah. And so it's like festival culture is becoming more academic, and like you can go to an academic, like a sociology and anthropology conference at Burning Man now. You know, that's mm -hmm. been going on for years. So like, what are your thoughts on that and how that's going to play out? Uh. I had a thought, and then I got lost in your words. Um. <laughs> or maybe, maybe the maybe we can loop that into, you know, you said you have a vision for how you see this sort mm -hmm. of greater network being like rolled out. Yeah. And clearly, that's those questions are related. Yeah. So I mean, my I almost dropped out of my second semester of grad school because I was faced with this realization that. I was not going to gain any more like nuts and bolts business knowledge than I came in with, that I wasn't going to learn more practical skills than I came in with. And I felt like they were grooming me to become a scholar and an academic, not a professional. Mm. And so this was a real, um, I really dove into this feeling of whether it was the right tracked for me because I did have a good grounding and foundation of professional work underneath me, you know, and was academia really the right place for me to flourish? And I decided and I realized that I can make it whatever I want and I have agency in this situation. In undergrad, you really have... Um, that was a guy talking on a Bluetooth earpiece <laughs> who is clearly unaware of his environment, yet somehow managed to navigate a staircase, for which I applaud him. Please, can you start that over, please? Yeah. Um, so I, I realized that I needed, I could take complete agency. An undergraduate, 
there's this perception of the professor having all of the power and you got to get good grades and you know and they kind of lead you into believing that you need to follow this specific formula as if your future job prospects are going to look at what classes you took and every grade you got, right? <laughs> There's this weird perception of the power that the professor holds. And something flipped for me, where I was like, wait a second, this isn't that situation. I am a goddamn adult. <laughs> and I can use the system however I choose. And so I've actually shifted completely. It was like breaking the previous mindset of how I approached academia. And I have made grad school work for me. I have created a platform for my projects. I have um, used it as a tool of networking with everything that I do. Every single project that I do is focused on my work. Nothing generic, none of the bullshit of, here's what I think we should do with arts entrepreneurship. It's, you know, it's all my work, and no one can talk me out of it. No one can tell me, don't use the word party in your research. And I'm like, I don't care. Because, you know, so that was, that was a huge shift for me. Um, and I think that I've been actually able to create some waves within my community and the university of just the way that I'm approaching my work and my education, that others feel more empowerment to do the same in their work that we don't have to be limited, we don't have to follow these same rules, we can still use these systems for our own benefit. And that is something I'd like to see, is more of that work. And I'm actually part of this uh, group of students that's being led by Daniel Bernard Romain. He's a composer and activist and incredible artist who's an institute professor. But he's basically gathered six of his, like six students who are already professionals, we just happen to also be students. So professional artists as students, we all have these big projects, we're all doing the work, and we have something to show for it. And our mission in this grouping is to flip, flip academia on its head and show them how to do it differently, show them how to do it better, show them how the students can also be the teachers, how we have something to share. We have something that other people are interested in, in our knowledge base of what we've learned, and it doesn't all just have to come from faculty. Uh, and so I see a lot of potential in this project. Um, you know, it's just six of us, but every single student who's a part of this is a very passionate professional and artist. So you have seven people taking on the university system. Well, okay, so <laughs> a quote that I always go back to, and in my, you know, in my work with party culture, everything is Buckminster Fuller. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't fight the risk, you cannot fight the existing reality. You have to make a new model to make the existing reality obsolete. Yeah. So that's it. You, so don't, you're you not, don't necessarily you're not buy it. You just warrants. do it better. Yeah. You just do it better. So what are some of the what are some of the uh, the principles you see at play in that? Like what do you like how how are you as a team, as a group, mm -hmm. recommending to the world that we could improve upon this system? So, I mean, obviously, more more student agency, more mm -hmm. sort of crosstalk between teacher and student and reversal of roles, or sort of a blending of roles. What else? Yeah, so uh, Daniel doesn't like to use the words teacher-student to begin with. We're all contributors or collaborators of a space. And right now we're working on a YouTube channel with uh, digital content, and we're starting out with 10-minute videos. 
So 10-minute video of what I have to teach. And we're looking at different audiences of K through five, middle school, high school, college. And we are, each one of us, examining what it is that we have to offer that we can teach other people in that frame of, in that time frame. And we're looking at developing these into a 13 to 15 week course eventually. So we are literally just re-examining how um, we can teach, how we can do an online class differently and do it more artistically with more engaging um, incorporation. So similar to my website and the Party Professional Toolkit is you know, engaging with people in multiple ways and not just this linear format that a lot of our online classes have been built into. And online classes, you know, like you're saying, really have massive opportunity to take wing and take, you know, they can both benefit and also compete with the existing academic structure. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're working on right now is producing that level of content that is using each of our projects, our own work as a way to um, inspire and educate other people through our own process. So, I mean, I have my step-by-step -step guide of producing an immersive community-led party. And, um, and that'll know. be up on the website. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think that I could do an hour-long touch-based summary enough to get someone inspired and activated and give them some direction, but then give them also more resources or written information to take them further. So I'm really excited about this group. We're, you know, six weeks in but it's the first time that I've been really activated in feeling like I can contribute to something in academia that isn't this formal, dry, rigid process that's been done. And that's exciting. And um, I'm finding my ways to just kind of insert my edgy work into the university. Like, I just got a $500 grant to do, to host consent-based body painting. So it's a practice of having students practice communication around consent. So saying, I'm okay with my arms being painted. I'm not okay with my face being painted. Mm. And no, please do not paint a fucking bird on my arm. <laughs> you know? And just getting people talking to each other and actually practicing those conversations. And it's been amazing because I've gotten so much pushback in different ways from the university of the, I got banned from the entire school of art for this project. We were trying what? to, yeah. The director for the School of Art said uh, that this project was non-professional and sexualizing body painting, which is completely the opposite of what we're doing. We're actually looking at it in the context of professional um, artists. So when you're working in film, dance, theater, photography, um, any form of visual arts, you're going to encounter nudity or vulnerable situations or working with clients and people on these, you know, you're working in these intimate vulnerable situations often as artists. Yeah. And so that's kind of our, our focus for it is how to get people practicing communicating with each other. You know, trying no on in your mouth. Like say no to mm -hmm. someone. Say no thank you. And look someone in the eyes and actually do it in outside of theory. And you're doing it in a physical way where you're also connecting with someone. And it's not, you know, and also that nudity is not sexual. It doesn't have, you know, nudity is not equal sex. 
But the only time I see people naked is when I'm about to have sex. So, and I'm, I'm normal, right? <laughs> I'm a normal human being, right? Yeah. I mean, and there's probably a lot of people who they are looking at naked people before they have sex with themselves. You know, oh, so there's that. there's that association. <laughs> <laughs> that, that actually leads into the next question I was going to have, which is like, I mean, obviously you can't just bucky fuller your way through life sidestepping the institutional conflict, mm-hmm. you know, um, even he couldn't do that. Yeah. So, like, what kind of resistance do you notice people operating in these spaces more generally, you know, in the party culture stuff, mm-hmm. people who are trying to implement these, you know, more progressive ideas and practices, what kind of trouble are they getting into? Like, especially, like, mm-hmm. just for, you know, as an example, like, there are... In the United States, with the, with you know, to bring the drug war into this, you've got the, and that kind of complicates things because the legal piece of it. But you have the uh, the powerful need for psychedelic harm reduction at events. Mm-hmm. You know, just just harm reduction in general. Yeah. You know, keeping people safe while they're going through these these uh, powerful experiences, mm-hmm. or you know, the release of the intense control that we have to exercise on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. But because of the Rave Act, you know, a, a venue is criminally liable if people are, like, selling... Or, you know, if they are if they are caring for people who are mm-hmm. using drugs, then they're considered to be aiding and abetting in the distribution of drugs. Yes, yeah, so they've shifted the fault to the venue in yeah. contrast with the individual's. Right. And I know that this happened in Chicago, but is that actually a national act, or is this a state-by-state? That is a, that is a national That is a national act. That's been going on since uh, Tipper Gore. That's like about 20 years. Oh, wow. So, I mean, that's just one example of many where mm-hmm. people recognize a need, a need that's absolutely going to improve people's safety, security, happiness, health, well-being. Mm-hmm. But there are institutional strictures in place that make it extremely difficult to put good ideas into practice. So like mm-hmm. where where else do you see this happening and how are people routing around it? Or maybe even in your own life, like mm-hmm. what is Well I think that you know I've been thinking a lot about that of how you communicate. So I've been trying to figure out how you communicate the the importance of people imbibing and being able to embrace a subtle shift through whatever substance they choose and that validation in society and how you can kind of transcend that conversation so that it is um, palatable for someone outside of the community and that's a lot of the work that I'm doing in the university right it's a completely different audience than who I interact with on a day-to-day basis and that's where I've been able to check my language and the words that I use and, you know, because when you're part of something, you develop a certain vocabulary and it becomes shared and people understand that. And um, when you step outside of that community, you might not make sense anymore, right? If you keep using those same phrases and words. I definitely do not make sense. Yeah, and so I've had to learn how to shift my language in a way that people who have no fucking clue what I'm talking about can understand. And in that, I think that there's ways to be aware and intentional of anything that you put into your body and how we support each other psychologically, emotionally, 
how we're holding space for each other because regardless of having any sort of substances, we all have our waves that we're riding of, you know, highs and lows and struggle and um, success. And I think that, you know, there's ways that we can support each other in that. Um, but it's still, it's still difficult to translate the language outside of the community. And for me, it's, it's moderation in everything, but also a responsibility for anyone hosting these events, for anyone producing these festivals, that they consider the psychological, emotional well-being of their participants because they are outside of their home space. They are outside of their safe, familiar space. And that can be difficult for people for any number of reasons. And being able to have a place where they know that they can go and just receive a hug or an ibuprofen or whatever it is that they need to just sit and get outside of the space for a little while is so important. And having people who are guides and ambassadors of just being a part of the experience and paying attention to what's going on. What's the vibe? Are there any outliers? Is there anyone being left out? Is there anyone who's having a hard time? Um, we set up in a stupid spot. We did our best. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's all good. Guy's using an ATM right next to us. That's AJ. Uh, yeah, we, um, so actually, this is a this is the other piece of it, right? Which is here uh, we're having this conversation about party culture next to the ATM, and there is a, uh, a tension here that. In, in what you're saying that really does have to be negotiated, which is already present in the culture of alcohol consumption, which mm -hmm. is that the reason we get all these people into one place is, is like you were saying earlier, to, to give them some sort of experience of hopefully ecstatic release mm -hmm. from their ordinary, mundane, highly determined insanity. But when you regard it as just the number game of like how many people, because mm -hmm. the fact is like throwing an event, especially one of like a festival where you're building the entire thing, or even if you're just paying rent, like this is a problem in Austin right now where like the, the bars can't sell enough beer to stay open. So there's, there's an economic incentive to mm -hmm. make these events as large as possible, to, yes. to, to get, to push as many people through them as possible. Mm -hmm. And you know, when we were hanging out at Gem and Jam a couple of years ago in, in Tucson at the at the slaughterhouse. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't hang out with you then though. But it was at the slaughterhouse. It was at the slaughterhouse. I mean Which the green room in Flagstaff is a slaughterhouse. Yeah, so there's yeah. this there is this sense with with all of us uh, that I was talking to at that years that it felt like you were herded cattle mm -hmm. through this facility, that it was the architecture of it made it clear it that you were being for like... moving cattle. <laughs> yes. You're like, yeah. it doesn't matter how, how much, like, celebration is going on right uh -huh. now. The fact of it is that we're, like, in a slaughterhouse that every Halloween is turned into a slaughterhouse-themed haunted mm -hmm. house. And, like, th that I felt like was driving straight to the heart of this issue, which is, there really is no place to run anymore. All right, so we have relocated because our last Location. spot was not well picked. <laughs> <laughs> we tried. Okay, but let's see, where were we? We were in the middle of... Uh, um, we were kind of getting into the economics. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the, the issue of this being in some part a problem of scale, mm-hmm. you know, and just the, the fact that as soon as you get the money component into it and the fact that, you know, rent is rising everywhere and blah, 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 yeah. you, you end up with these slaughterhouse-type situations. So, like, how do you, you know, how do you see that? What, what do you think are the... Uh, I think that there's, you know, a lot of these events and festivals will spend a lot of money on touring talent and bringing people in from other places, which is absolutely meaningful and worthwhile. But then there's also, uh, you have to consider that in the scale to your community and to what, you know, when it's appropriate to do that. Because I've seen a lot of community producers just think they need to book all of these touring headlining acts and it sucks all of the money out of the event. So I think that there's ways to be intentional with your budget in that way. Um, And if you can produce something that's completely community-led, you'll have a lot more budget to work with. I think that there's so much opportunity to providing non-alcoholic cocktails of kombucha and and, um, not tinctures, what was the word I'm looking for? Tinctures is a yeah. Yeah, tonics. Tonics. You know, there's all these... village witches. Yes. Yes. And, you know, even, you know, that's getting into all these different herbs and ways to interact with your body and your experience in a much softer way. I think there's a lot of opportunity there where people will say, oh, if you don't have alcohol at your event, you're not going to make money. And it's kind of a threat. (laughs) Yeah. Nobody's going to go. You're never going to make money. Uh, But I also find that I find that having a drink or two is helpful for me with my social anxiety of being able to settle in, but that's kind of where I'll stay. And I think that, you know, as a community, you should be able to have alcohol available and keep it within a level. And there's people are always in different places, right? So I had a friend who's a DJ who's always on point, and this one event, he was, like, not on point at all. (laughs) He actually just didn't show up for a set, he took. He doesn't take drugs very often, but he did, and he had the experience he needed to have. But I also just kind of granted him that mistake to be like, well, that's not, that's okay. You can fall short sometimes. <laughs> like we all fall short sometimes. And I mean, was he getting paid? Uh, you know, he uh, ended up being the guy that led the entire strike, so he worked his ass off for strike. Okay. So he still got, you know, he still got paid. His merit was intact. Um, yeah, and it was interesting because that was... So I, I've been producing these 48-hour festivals that the entire experience is curated in a flow mm-hmm. um, that guides everyone kind of through this experience together, and that's been where I've been able to do a lot of experimentation in uh, the experience of the participant. And this event, I woke up with anxiety two days before the event, just woke up with it, you know, heart racing, the whole thing was kind of a mess. And so I woke up just feeling anxious and realized that as the producer, my energy ripples through the entire experience. Mm. If I show up as a stressed out producer, as so many people have seen (laughs) at these events, it's just going to carry through my entire team. And so I kind of made an agreement with myself at that point to be the place of calm to be the place of calm and to be aware, but not to, you know, to give a fuck about the right things, basically. 
And through that event, I was able to, that was my number one goal. And I found that because I didn't stress out about those little things that weren't perfect, they fell into place on their own. Hmm. It was like, because I didn't freak out about that DJ not showing up for his shift, someone else filled in and was working extra hard, but then they were able to rest when it came time for strike, and he stepped in when everyone else was completely burned out. And, you know, so there's just things like that where it was like letting, it's like I'm, what, me getting upset isn't going to change this, right? And that goes back to something I see a lot in terms of the issue of scaling an event. Yeah. The issue with the the burden that festival producers often assume, on, like, without properly delegating. Mm-hmm. And that that's another, you know, if you look at the festival as a microcosm of society mm-hmm. and our, like, millennia-long struggle to wrestle ourselves out from under authoritarian systems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it gets back to this issue of personal agency, you know, stepping up as an adult, and the fact that, like, in our culture, time and time again it comes up on the show that we don't really, we don't have, like, a definitive event Mm -hmm. that is is true for everyone that's, like, you're an adult now. Even if you're, even parents sometimes are, like, still psychologically stuck in this, like, adolescent Mm -hmm. spot where they never properly came of age, you know. And so I'm curious, like, there's something in what you're saying mm-hmm. about leadership in general. Yes. And about the importance of spreading it around. Yes. <laughs> and, and you know, giving, empowering people to do their thing. So it's like, I like to set up a framework of here's the big picture. Here are all of the main roles underneath that picture. Each one of those roles has a lead, and that lead has their objectives. And I trust that person to accomplish those goals however they see fit and to keep me informed. And I used to get caught in the place of being a producer where everyone is coming to me for questions, and I am literally trying to answer everybody's question. But then, you know, the shift this summer into these most recent events I was doing, it was transformational for me as far as being able to push the decision back. And, you know, so I'd have one of my leads come to me with a thing because it's not it's not productive for a community to look to one person for all the answers, mm-hmm. right? But my, one of my power statements became, I hear you and I trust you to find the right solution and keep me informed. And so it was, you know, it's, it's still a communication piece of like letting me know what you decide, but letting people have that empowerment because people can get caught in thinking, I need permission, I need permission from this person to do my thing. And once you break out of that, of being like, wait, this is my thing, and I can decide how to accomplish this, you can become your own leader, you know, and you can become the leader of your own team and not getting stuck in that loop of needing permission, which we do get caught in Mm -hmm. as, you know, having parentals or, you know, those dynamics. So I've been really experimenting with that in my leadership style, and it's been amazing (laughs) Mm. and uh just kind of practicing my my power statements of like i hear you but i can't give you what you want Uh you know i'm sorry but i cannot give you what you want because you can't always give people what they want like i understand i hear you but that's just not what we could do and working with different dynamics of people and different energies and different heightened spaces with people of knowing your own Mm-hmm. triggers and when it's time for you to step back and to be like I actually need 
I need a minute because I'm going to react instead of respond. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, please, you know, like, I, you know, like, I'm, and to be able to tune in with yourself to understand that that's what's happening because I've done that in the past of just reacting and I have a real quick fire that can burn really fucking hot. <laughs> it's pretty dangerous and I see that. And so, you know, a lot of my life is pacifying the fire and using the fire in the right places. Yeah. Like, yeah, let's use fire over here. This is some good fire. Now let's cool it down over here. We're going we're gonna to give a nice flame on this glaze rather than like, mm-hmm. you know, flamethrower this apartment. Yeah, yeah. There's a meme I really like that says, uh, I like romantic candlelit dinners that burn it all to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, you know, I don't think that there's, that sounds very appropriate to the way that you relate to the university. Yeah. And like (laughs) legacy systems in general. So what what are the other, um, what are some of the other things? You talked about putting together an an ethos for party culture. Yes. So, you know, I would be, a fool for not giving you the opportunity to detail more of that. So this, this. yeah, this aspect is very much in development. Uh-huh. Uh, I kind of just have right now. I'm speaking from my own place of um, I am a hyper analytical person, highly sensitive. I don't necessarily turn off, and I am always analyzing the spaces, the situation, the energy, the vibe, the music, the light, the sound, all of it, and it's my own neurotic psychosis that I live with and uh, so within that these are kind of the things that I'm paying attention to and kind of my own navigating devices one of my I've been developing these little mantras for myself and one of them is everything in moderation even moderation and there was a time when I lived with four 18 year old boys for three months (laughs) and it was one of the best experiences of my life uh, reconnecting to that time like they'd all just graduated high school they're trying to figure out what to do with themselves and how old were you uh 28 okay Saturn return moment yeah (laughs) yeah totally and it was really interesting because we'd sit on the porch and we'd talk about life whatever but that was one of the things that I said to them is I was like you know everything in moderation they're like yeah 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 like don't do too much and I was like no even moderation they're like what and I was like go hard don't go hard all the time you know, decide when it's appropriate. When is it the right moment for you to go deep, to go there, you know? And otherwise, what is your homeostasis of moderation? And how, and another piece is presence, you know? Gift presence. Your presence is a gift. Being there, being aware, being considerate, being respectful. How are you being present? How are you showing up? And... What are some other pieces of the ethos? So this is actually a piece that I would like to crowdsource as I do these interviews with people uh, from community-led party cultures. You know, what what is your ethos? What are the things that you feel could contribute to a more, you know, widely adopted party ethos? I like what you said about making sure that there is a safe space within every party mm-hmm. like us I, I, I went the last couple of years when i was at burning man i was camping with camp soft landing okay. which is uh where they hold the palenque norte speaker series that terence mckenna started back in the 90s in mexico and they moved it onto the playa you know bruce damer and lorenzo haggerty and all them back in the i don't know 2004 or 5 i think and the centerpiece of that camp 
is not actually the speaker series, but the, the, the Full Circle Tea House, which is in association with the Zendo, but mm-hmm. not, not a place where real intensive care is being provided for people, but a place where you stumble upon it and it's an oasis and it's mm-hmm. comfortable and it's safe and it's relaxing. And I was so inspired by this experience of Camp Soft Landing mm-hmm. that I, uh, at a big commercial festival in Austin recently, the Waterloo Music Festival, I put a, a proposal together for a 14-person team to put a, a, a huge outdoor chill zone together in a grove. And my friend brought in all this rainproof furniture and mm-hmm. we had a tea house in it. And I, I bought all these sail shades and hung them in the trees. We had a seven-person live painting mural. And the, we put all this together from proposal to execution in like under a month with like multiple planning meetings and all this stuff. And it was intensely difficult. So I have a, some sense of like what you go through as a, <laughs> you know, like this is, and especially what it means to work with people of different ages and mm-hmm. like how do you properly assign people responsibilities and all this mm-hmm. stuff. But I was really touched that the, the festival producers saw the space before it was even fully built and inhabited and we're just like this is wonderful and like people kept coming up to us throughout the weekend saying that this was their favorite part of the whole event mm-hmm. because it's the only part of the event where they could get comfortable yes and i think that that's so key it's like people right now are going through this thing about creating safe spaces where people can feel like they're not being persecuted mm-hmm. you know and that like the university should be a safe space and it's like well, I mean, if we get obsessed with the idea of safety, we know what happens. Mm-hmm. Like, we know that, you know, in the Alan Watts sense, it just becomes a breath-holding competition and we all turn purple. You know, <laughs> that it, 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 the wisdom of insecurity is that you can't, like, the harder you try to become, secu- you know, for everything mm-hmm. to be safe, you end up becoming the monster and alienating people and creating these divides. Yes. But, like, there's still a place it's like, well... If festivals are taking over the whole planet in some sense, you know, if, if this breakdown of the space-time of the holiday calendar is just like, you know, Black Friday is now give Cyber Monday and Giving Tuesday, <laughs> and it starts on a t- it starts on a Tuesday, you know, and it's like no, you know, it's just it's like the mold is just going to eat our whole year, and summers used to be festival season, and now it's all year, right? And so. We need, like, we need spots in our calendar as well as in each event where people can go and just like lie down on a on like mm-hmm. a carpet or something, you know, and like have a cup of tea yes. and like maybe be a little too high or just too tired or just dehydrated or just sleepy. That to me feels like an essential piece of the ethos is is the rest, yes. providing like providing a pause in the music mm-hmm. for people, you know. And that's part of the dynamic, right? Where if you're just in a stimulating space for too long, it's going to be exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, being able to offer those different dynamics. So when I would produce inner space, it was very important that you would have the dance floor and the performance area, but then you also have the quieter social space that just allows that duality to exist in the same sphere. And I think that the emergence of 
chill zones and soft landing. And like here in Arizona, we have the dewampification station, <laughs> uh, which is here at Convergence. And those serve a really important purpose for the community that it's not all just rage your face, you know, party base the whole time. That's exhausting. You know, that's not fruitful. Where the magic happens is where people can actually talk and connect and hear each other. And that those are the spaces that I'm most interested in. But then that wouldn't be as meaningful if you didn't also have that dynamic of losing yourself on the dance floor. Right. You know, and then also the dynamic of connecting with people in your camp and, you know, those little slow morning conversations and the people around you as everyone's kind of coming to life. Have you been to Boom? I don't. Okay. Um, Psytrance. Uh-huh. Yeah. Not your um, thing. I had to camp behind the Psytrance stage at Oregon Eclipse, and uh-huh. I about lost my mind with everyone else there. And uh-huh. I can tell you, I know the breadth of Psytrance because I heard it for 24 hours a day for five days. Yeah. Boom sounds amazing, except I'm afraid of the Psytrance. Okay, that's that's a fair thing. I, you know, I wasn't a fan of Psytrance until I went to Boom. And... I mean, I like I like music that feels good. Mm-hmm. That's really my qualifier. Yeah, I want to feel good when I'm listening to music or dancing yeah. to music. I want the good feelings, and it felt like someone was like punching through my chest in a really aggressive way, and like it was very abrasive. Well, that festival in particular, you know, Oregon Eclipse was happening just as an, a tangent. Yeah, Oregon Eclipse was happening while there were a thousand forest fires going on in the western United States. The sky was full of smoke. Yeah, People, you know, it was during a solar eclipse. Yeah, the like it was a very tense time, and it doesn't surprise me that you had a kind of an abrasive experience with it, especially camped right next to it at such a big festival. You know, mm-hmm. but I think that. There's something again to speak to the, the the need for space and like buffers and vesicles, you know. Uh, that boom for starters is on a, is on like runs the the length of this beach on this enormous open lake, and you can it's very easy to get away from the music there. I mean, you still hear it in the mm-hmm. distance, but it's easy to like get into the water and just like celebrate your naked body along with all of these you know, thousands of Europeans who do not have the same American body issues that you do. And when I went in 2016, they had flown in medicine elders from all over the world and they were holding ceremony in different spots around the event. Just, you know, not like ayahuasca ceremony, but just you know, engaging people in, in ritual and prayer. Mm-hmm. And there was a woman who had lived on that land from before the festival started there, like over 20 years prior. This, like, wonderful uh, old gypsy-type lady named uh, I- Ines. And Ines was presiding over the sacred fire that was on this peninsula from where you could look over and see the entire festival throbbing like an alien insect in the distance. And I spent my whole week there. Like, I, it was this thing about, they got it right. Mm. Like, there's something about the, you get outside of the United States, and obviously I haven't been to, like, Glastonbury, and, like, obviously that, that like, enormous commercial mm-hmm. thing exists everywhere now yes. also. But there's something about the Psytrance scene in particular that seems to identify, like, recognize, uh, they don't, they don't, to tend to run from high technology in the future, but they recognize the need for 
a retrieval of like the body and the tradition mm-hmm. and the the organization of space that is like you know natural and comfortable to us. So and is I that just, an acknowledging that you cannot stay in that environment in its entirety? You can't just stay at a side trance stage for twenty four hours. Right. I just had to live in a side trance stage for twenty four hours, right. but. And there was the chill-out yeah. stage at Boom, too. Yeah, and the so chill like out stage is as that big. opportunity to get outside of that's important. Yeah, the chill, yeah. the ambient music stage was as big as mm. the other two yeah. main Psytrance stages. And the guy, um, props to Moreno, Master Margarita, who was stage manager, and invited me out there. And I remember he was, like, constantly on the horn with the adjacent Psytrance stage, like, yelling at them, like, while chain-smoking, like, turn it down, we're trying to run a chill-out stage over here. <laughs> that sounds like poor planning and well, it was, it was just they were, they were just like, shut up, Moreno, you're, you're at this festival. But yeah. it was, yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't escapable, but, yeah. but it was, uh, yeah, I don't know, I just, there's something in that that I feel like well, you'd really enjoy. I think there's something in there, too, of just, like, what you're saying, of having, offering a variety of opportunities for a diff, like a lot of opportunities for how people engage with an experience that it's not just one linear tract and sometimes there is you know it's useful to have kind of that linear tract but that for people to always maintain their own independent agency and I, I was at this um, really nice event in New York uh, put together by these people that I'm not going to mention um, <laughs> But it was a really nice uh, event, but there was pieces of it where it felt like they were just holding on way too tight. And at the end, when he was trying to get, this guy was trying to get everyone into the closing ceremony, it was just so forced. Mm. And it was forced, and it was abrasive, and his energy was just heightened. And, you know, it kind of, it killed the intention of what he was actually trying to pull off, because it was just way too aggressive and abrasive of, like, Come here, we're going to have an intentional moment right now. Everybody, be quiet, be quiet. We're doing this. It was very teacher, you know, again, it was that that difference instead of, you know, I feel like you can bring much more of that softness, that you can't force someone to have the experience you want them to have. You can't force that on people. You know, you have to always grant them the opportunity to do whatever the fuck it is they want. But if they're going to be, if there's something happening in this space and you want to be in this space, please be respectful of the thing. And if you want to be loud, please go elsewhere. You know, you can hold agency over your space, but giving people an opportunity to, to do their own thing. Yeah, actually, this, this whole conversation started when we were watching a keynote at this event, and we were, like, in the peanut gallery in the back, and I was like, wow, this conversation is getting really interesting. Let's move it. Yes. You know, let's, yes. Be, let's be respectful <laughs> of what's going on here. And um, I have, you know, in that vein, I have a question for you that uh, just sort of bubbled up, which is, what what do you think let's let's flip it what do you think mm. that the the party culture can learn from the academic environment ooh like what is it what is it in these spaces with all of their structure and their tradition and their sort of established boundaries but also in the challenges that they're going through now mm-hmm. and renegotiating all that stuff that could inform or or guide uh, the evolution of party culture that you're proposing so observing. what was meaningful for me was getting out of my own echo chamber, number one. Getting out of my echo chamber and communicating ideas to people outside of my existing community. And that has been massive for me. 
um, and just learning about other people's things that I had no idea about or no interest to necessarily dive into, but like having that shared space to share what I've been learning and then to learn about what other people have been learning. And I think that that is really impactful and powerful. And uh, on that, based on that, I've actually started developing um, facilitated discussions, so um, or facilitated conversations in festivals. So not just a lecture and a workshop, but people sharing that information with each other and creating opportunity through um, different kind of like almost theater type games of getting people sharing their own information and knowledge with each other and just talking and how powerful that can be of communicating with several different people in a very meaningful, direct way over an hour. But then those become people that you may not have known before and now you know them and now Mm -hmm. they're part of your community too. And I think that the, you know, that's definitely something that I've pulled from academia through my creative facilitation classes. I was like, whoa, there's something really interesting happening here of just getting people having dialogue. And so I've brought that into one festival so far, and it was incredible. And I think that that's something that I'd really like to see happening more in these places is these dialogue spaces of people sharing their own information. So my buddy, uh, our buddy, Mitch call, <laughs> calls me a psychedelic conservative because I'm the guy that everyone assumes is like psychedelic, but I'm going around being like, be safe kids, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and there's something in that, uh, this idea of bringing some more structure into the festival environment that really ap- pleases me. And, uh, the Waterloo paint crew, the chill out zone crew. And I were joking about, we, we found a video of, this guy in, dressed as a referee handing out red cards to, like, drunk ah. and belligerent <laughs> girls at music festivals. And then, like, there's this, I don't, uh, maybe I can find it and post it in the show notes. This uh, video, drunk and belligerent young women? Well, okay, yes, yes. Um, I mean, again, it's this confusion yeah. around what justifies adulthood, I guess. Yeah, yeah, know? totally, but, totally. Um, because I would say, like, you know, again, like, the boyfriends are, like, you know, boys in that they came up, like, all puffy chested like up on this referee like by giving <laughs> by giving his girlfriend a, a red card that uh-huh. he had somehow like violated her dignity as a human being or whatever it's mm-hmm. like no come on we all know you're both trashed and making fools of yourselves it's just a reminder that yeah. you're still surrounded by people yeah you know and i, I like I, I love the idea of a festival referee mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't know like what do you do you think that well, would work okay so No. <laughs> Not in those terms. Uh, festival mediators. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, festival facilitators. Yes. Ambassadors. Yes. <laughs> it is a bit of I trolling. Mean, it's, it, it, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, but as your own individual contribution, if that's what you want to do, by all means, <laughs> if you want to go and be the festival referee, do it. And accept the consequences that may come with that. <laughs> but I've got this other theory of uh, that I developed through Interspace when we were doing it in this smaller venue. It was like 200-person capacity. Well, to talk about Interspace first, though. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so Interspace was an immersive house music event that I was throwing bi-monthly in Flagstaff, Arizona for uh, consecutive two years. 
And this event was an opportunity to showcase the various talents of our community. But what I felt was really meaningful was the storytelling that we did. So we would create a different environment, environmental experience, and we would kind of we would always have a portal entrance so that someone knew that they were walking into a different space and not just a little coffee shop wine bar. Mm. Um, so that portal entrance was very important. But we would communicate the narrative through the environment and also through the performances. So there's all this storytelling happening. And this is where I had the chance to just do all my social experiments <laughs> and uh, you know, kind of threw myself in without knowing and just learning along the way. And that was January 2014. So I'm coming up on, is that five years mm -hmm. of you know, producing events, but starting with that. And one of the things that I developed was we didn't have security. We basically had a door person and, you know, we we're relying on community accountability for the most part, but it really helped to actually go through and delegate my people. So I call them the knights of the dance floor. Mm. So I would go and literally knight people by tapping on each shoulder and say, you are a guardian of this space and you have permission to step in and step up and communicate as needed to facilitate this space. And just granting, just doing a little ritual with people to say, like, you are someone that I trust that knows this space, like, please help protect it, basically. Mm. And it worked out really well. And I mean, that's something that you can almost do to everyone. But um, I think that having people in the space who have been given permission and have been empowered to step in can be really impactful because otherwise people can kind of, you know, there's that theory around, you know, someone calls for help and nobody steps in because they assume someone else is going to. Right. Right. But you've been given that agency. You know, right. you have you've been empowered and knighted to step in, to be that person, to say, "Hey, you know what? There's this guy that I'm noticing is really creeping up close behind a lot of women on the dance floor, and I'm going to tap his shoulder and take him aside and talk to him about that." Yeah, yeah. And I think that there's some real power there, and just and I mean, but anyone can do that, right? Deputizing people. Deputizing. So to yes. this point, this is a thing that I've been talking about with. My friends Zoe Claire and uh, and Kova Sterling, who both in the you know like Colorado kind of Sonic Bloom festival mm -hmm. scene mm -hmm. and um, and a Rise festival, and a couple of years ago we had this conversation about the festival sheriff because my a, a couple of things feed into this and I'm really curious like obviously this is a little different we'll get to that mm -hmm. um, but James Orock. Uh, the the author uh, and and speaker, whom I met at Entheon Camp at, at Burning Man, mm -hmm. uh, has an outfit that is like a it looks like a police uniform until you get up close to it, and then it's all like paisley stitching, and the badge is like some trippy thing. Mm. And there's a sense of like I told him I was like, dude, I, I actually feel safe around a cop with you here because he's this like big burly. Mm -hmm. Like Australian dude, you know, you, you just know that he's like a, a responsible, sane kind of guy, but that he could kick somebody's ass if he had to. And so we were, t they, they were talking about to loop back to your point around the the building a network of stable, permanent, owned communities where these mm -hmm. events can be held. 
that's one piece. The other piece is that Zoe and, and, and Sterling were talking about what do we do if, you know, Sonic Bloom ended up becoming mm-hmm. a, an owned property. You know, Jamie bought that land at Hummingbird Ranch. Yes. And I, I don't know about in Colorado, but at least in Texas, if you have 52 people living on a ranch or a, a large enough property, you can incorporate as a town and then you can, you know, elect your own sheriff. And then the sheriff becomes a, me- a legal membrane between your events and local law enforcement. This sounds very Texas, but I like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Texas the diff- specific, probably. It is, yeah, <laughs> possibly. But this this issue of um, so you've got the internal knights mm-hmm. that are like mediating and monitoring this thing, and then there's this possibility that we're going to have to come up with ways to create things that look like you were saying about learning how to speak outside of the festival language, mm-hmm. you know, that we're going to have to come with, come up with ways to speak in ways that the greater society understands yes. th- these roles. And then th- the last piece of this is that the word police comes from polis and that it was originally the case that it was like a neighborhood watch deal and that the police, the policeman was not a distinct you know that we didn't have career soldiers and police officers defending things. It was mm-hmm. it was a, a citizen militia, yeah. and everybody just threw their their tool their work tools down and went and fought a war and then went back to work. Yep. You know, and so this question of like, how is that? How are both sides of that? Mm-hmm. You know, like the official elected representative person yeah. that interfaces with the larger thing, but then also the acknowledgement that in some sense is a performative role and that we're all responsible for policing one another and ourselves mm-hmm. and ourselves, yes. you know? Um, yeah. What do you think is like, how do you see this actually like being implemented in, in this future awesome so, awakened thing? All right. So to shift it away from festivals back to urban nightlife, yes. there's been some really exciting development in that area. Uh, in 2014, Amsterdam elected their first night mayor. What? <laughs> and they've actually been able to implement some policies. There's this idea of having governance and nightlife representation with the local government. So it started with the night mayor in Amsterdam. And there have been, I supposedly they're saying there's 30 international cities now that have developed a nightlife mare, which sounds better than nightmare. <laughs> I don't know, like night, yeah, that's kind of a, an accidental, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so nightlife mare. Uh, but New York just elected or appointed their first nightlife mayor uh, in July, and they have a nightlife advisory board. Whoa! Yes. So this is really exciting in the development of what does it look like to actually have governance over our nightlife spaces and to actually be able to... Um, represent the needs of those spaces and that community to City Hall, to the mayor. To have a voice and to have representation is huge. So I'm really excited about this development. And um, how did how did this even happen? Like, how did Amsterdam decide that they needed the night mayor? Well, because um, there, you know, there's this whole spectrum of things that happen and there are some really dark things that can happen in the night and in parties and in these spaces right so there's certain things that were getting out of hand where 
there were laws that, that what happens is it's um it's called like quiet regulation right they just start something happens and then there's this reactionary law that is put into place to be like oh well we can't have that happening so we're going to make a law about it like the rave act yes exactly yeah. and that was uh so the dean of my school actually wrote this amazing piece on the quiet regulation of that in chicago but and just that difference of a community not being able to step up and protest or rally or create support for their interest so in amsterdam this was happening and they developed actually a nonprofit organization, and they did have a vote to appoint this man. His last name is Milan. I can't remember his first name. It's something Milan. And they appointed him, and they've actually been implementing these different changes. So they've been rezoning areas of the city to become 24-hour nightlife districts. <laughs> there, there it is again, the, the the decay of the cycle. Yeah, yeah. and so they're, um, but they're moving those to the edges of the city so that it is inviting people to move out from the city center to provide economic development to other areas of the city. Wow. They've, and, but it also prevents, it's created less uh, street noise because. People are not all just leaving the bar at 2 a.m. or 4 a.m. or everyone's leaving at the same time. It allows a natural flow of people coming and going when they choose, not so much of this very specific timeline that we've developed in spaces like Arizona where people go out at 11 o'clock and they go home at 2 a.m. And you have these three hours that are really heightened for nightlife that can kind of just become this crazy fervor of drinking and activity and, you know, get it all out. And it's just, it's a very short time period. And what happens when you just extend that and open it up where not everyone is trying to go out and that squeeze their, you know, expression into those three hours. And it's been really beneficial of bringing noise levels and street crime down and just kind of allowing more natural flow. So it's, it's been, Amsterdam was the, the first city to do this and it's through a nonprofit organization. But um, New York has been appointed by the mayor and they have an office of media and entertainment which then developed into an office of nightlife and this nightlife advisory board and I'm so excited because this is all in the last couple months and this is New York City and so I'm really excited to see what they do with this because finally nightlife is being acknowledged as economically viable but then, as I mentioned earlier, the difficulty there is that when something becomes economically viable, the people with uh, the most wealth come in and exploit that. And so you have these dynamics of corporate-driven versus community-led. Mm. And as you have more buyouts from the corporate-driven, you're going to have fewer opportunities for the community-led. And that's where I think people need to start investing in property and ownership in whatever way possible not renting spaces, not buying a warehouse and renovating it and making it beautiful and making this uh, neighborhood more viable because of the creativity happening, that there are, there, are real, there are realtors that will, or not realtors, but like landlords who will sit on a piece of property until artists come in and fix it for them. And then they raise the rent and kick the artists out and be like, thanks, thanks for your contributions. Yeah. So I think, you know, that, like I was saying at the beginning, there's, there is this socioeconomic war that is happening in these spaces, in our urban spaces. And we can sit outside in our 
you know, festivals and Burning Man happening outside of our cities and pretend like things are okay, like we're creating our own societies, but that is completely ignorant to what's happening in our major metropolis spaces. Well, I don't know that Burning Man really counts as an as an exception to that anymore, right? Like Burning yeah. Man's been going through some really difficult growing pains in that regard as well. And and the extension, you know, burners burner culture is happening in most every major city mm-hmm. around you know around the world. Like there's burner communities, but from the outside perspective, they still feel exclusive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, there is a barrier of entry into burner culture, and there is a piece of it that is about having someone bring you in, and you know, becoming part of the community. And I think that that is great, but it's a very specific culture. And I'm really interested in seeing what we can learn from that culture and what's been happening there to just really making, like, how do we, how do we re-envision the nightclub mm-hmm. and, you know, these spaces that are happening that people are accessible to people of all different groups? And how do you invite someone into a space and acculturate them more quickly? There's something else about this this idea of the 24-hour nightlife district mm-hmm. that really speaks to. Um, I've been having this you, when you get into the, the the function of the party as a kind of liminal space or an ecstatic environment. I think part of it is that we have a the curious among us have a desire to transgress boundaries mm-hmm. and. I've been having this fantasy for the last several months of there's this this really cool nightclub downtown in Austin, Empire Control Room, which is right on the creek that mm-hmm. runs through the city, and it's got this cool back patio area. My friend's been throwing this weekly there for years, and it's like, man, it would be awesome if instead of just from you know, 9 to 2 a.m. on Wednesdays, if Create Culture could have a sleepover here. Where it's a, you know, we have mm-hmm. to still obey the liquor laws, so it's a non-alcoholic lock-in. Yeah. You know, where we can hang out downtown all night, you know, for a private event, and it can be this, this space where we, we have a, uh, yeah, just just like the idea of the like the, the underutilized. This kind of gets back to the whole issue of like dressing up a warehouse and like the desire of artists to make use of mm-hmm. spaces that aren't being creatively expressed in their fullest. But that's all a a tangent. Do you ever think that we will ever, like, truly, fully come to a sense of, like, peace and balance and integration between these different, obviously conflicting interests in in our our society? Do you think that other... I mean, like, there's this whole thing about party culture being a distraction. You know, Mm -hmm. being, being, being... Having been... Our desire to transcend ourselves has been weaponized, mm-hmm. you know, and, and used to, again, like we were talking about Saturnalia, like it's yeah. used to kind of keep the slaves, okay, we, we had our, we got trashed on Friday night, we're going to go back to work on, some, mm-hmm. you know, Monday morning. Do you think we're ever going to, like, f- figure it out in a way that these these different interests respect one another? <laughs> or that there's, a there's like, a whole, like, a synergy mm-hmm. and not just, like, a, a, t- uh, a dissonance between them? I think it's possible. I'd like to be optimistic. I, I believe that we, the current models that exist are not where we have to remain within. You know, that we can start 
we can take what we've been learning in these different laboratories and develop what that next level of connection looks like. And within that, there's, you know, it's kind of that idea of going hard but not all the time, like everything in moderation, even moderation, of there are so much greater benefits of getting these people together and what at what point can we make getting people together to create, to build, to connect, to learn, to be enough that you don't necessarily need the substances to find those spaces enjoyable. And that's what I personally seek, you know, and there's those moments where it's nice to let go and like, but you can also use those as opportunities to tune in deeper, Mm. you know, it's tuning in, not tuning out. Um, And I think that those are all balances and kind of where through shared knowledge and mentorship, you know, we kind of take what we're learning where I don't believe that, you know, the 18 year old, the, the average 18 year old is not being nurtured in society. It's like, figure it out, you know, all of these changes, figure out who you want to be, where you want to go, what you want to do, how you want to contribute to society. And oh, by the way, you're going to face all of these different emotional changes that you've never experienced before, social changes and different challenges of where you fit in. And within that, within the existing, like, you know, under 21 party culture, there's a lot of life-altering mistakes that can happen Mm -hmm. that are preventative through information. But people are not sharing this information. People are not sharing this knowledge um, as and I feel like it's not as widely accessible as it could be that there's opportunity for us to nurture the younger groups more to help them make more informed, better decisions about what it is they're putting into their bodies and you know what their sp- what their role is within a greater ecosystem and. I and you we can know. get them to listen to better music too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, Dad. Oh God, yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm definitely yeah. Whole <laughs> different conversation. <laughs> and that's you know, and that's where I wonder too is like, what's the point where I become irrelevant? Right. You know, where where is my shit become irrelevant? Where is it? Where do I become in trying to get out of my echo chamber, just becoming part of a bigger echo chamber? Oh God that labyrinth yeah so, so in that respect let's turn this outward like you're, uh-huh. you're about to embark on this adventure of research and you're you know you're you're, you're turning it um your attention you, you mentioned before we started recording that you really want this project this, this website to provide a platform for people to share their knowledge so what kind of stories are you looking for? Like, I'm sure there are people mm-hmm. listening to this right now that, that are, like, turned on and interested in, in talking to you about their experience. And, and like, um, what are you focusing on in terms of, like, the kind of conversations and content and stuff mm-hmm. that you're gathering for this? And then, like, how can people uh, reach out to you if they have something to contribute? So there's... Um you know, two audiences for this. There's producers, but also participants. And I'd like to uh, include both aspects. So, I mean, within that, you have performers, musicians, artists of all different types. Um, 
but there's it's all stories right storytelling is how you connect with people and we can't necessarily put it all into one box so I think it's important to like tell these individual stories because it communicates the vast variety of what's happening it's not something that can be put into a single box it's not something that's easily defined and I've been you know kind of struggling around the language of just even communicating where my focus is of coming to this space of community-led you know that's where I'm interested in I'm not interested in the huge headliners the big festivals you know all that stuff like I participate in those spaces but I'm really interested in the communities that develop around these spaces where the community is building and creating and there are individual experiences within that there's individual stories and that are also relative to the specific place that mm. people are in and my hope is that through sharing these this ideas uh, the information of people talking about what's working well for them what their challenges are how they're integrated within their community how they bring people in and how they are also you know how they handle their finances and what they do with legal issues and how they do their permitting and some of that stuff that's really hard to find the information sometimes like there's uh, I'm going to Detroit for Theater Bazaar in two weeks and this is a five story theatrical immersive experience that takes place in the world's largest Masonic temple Whoa. and so I mean this is you know five stories of carnivalesque and uh, sideshow type performances and characters and everyone's in costume and this whole thing. And this is, you know, a million dollar production that they do once a year. And uh, one of the producers of this event, uh, Jason McComb, he is willing to talk about the numbers and budgeting and finances and paying artists and all this stuff that is Wait a so taboo. What did you just say? Paying artists. And actually, in my own personal ethos, that is so important. It's like, I don't want to produce any event unless I can pay every single person involved with that event at least 20 bucks to be like, go get yourself a meal, you know, whatever it is, like pay people. We can't just, you know, you can't eat exposure. Like exposure doesn't, I mean, it feeds you in some way to be able to contribute, but there's also a certain limit to how long we can just give ourselves without getting some sort of monetary value in return and it's a value exchange by the way that uh, the answer to that question is mm -hmm. you can make it to the age of 34 mm. <laughs> it's like that's that's where i drew the line i'm like yeah. you're gonna pay me now fucker right <laughs> you know it's like you get to that yeah anyway. and it, it's not yeah. responsible yeah. and you know so that's kind of a thing too is i'm looking at is there's an ethos for producing there's also an ethos for participating you know, so when you're producing, that's a piece is, you know, uh, recognition and gratitude. And a piece of that gratitude is through monetary value. And if you can't afford to pay people, you need to relook at your budget and how you're producing this event and how you're, you know, your tickets, whatever it is. I believe that there's a place for free events, but I also feel that there can be a misperception of value for the participant when... They start to expect all these free events with all this production and art and music. And I don't see how that's feeding the community. 
And I would like for the community to find more personal accountability in, you know, in being a consumer and a participant and like what you are contributing. It's like you are contributing monetary value that you know is going to support those artists and their projects and, you know, feeding those people and their work. That why do we go into these spaces expecting people to perform for us for free? It was so infuriating. I was just at the annual festival that my friend, it's a tiny little thing that my friends threw in Texas, just a few hundred people. But it was, it was scary because they were putting on such an extraordinary production. There was this enormous like CNC stage that my friends designed and then projected like video mapping onto. Mm-hmm. And then they, they, they made their own sound system. One of the guys has a, an audio company and like the whole thing like a, a world-class lineup of like 30 painters from all over the country and they lost tens of thousands of dollars on this because everyone involved like every like everyone there was just there and meanwhile this festival is the extension of what is an ordinary like a, a repeating free event and they had a bunch of people sneak in because they they had cultivated this expectation that you don't have to pay to appreciate this stuff and it was like, oh my god, Like, how do we reorganize this so that every single painter, fire performer, a sound engineer, like every single person involved is lending a hand to the financial success of this event? Yes. Like it almost inverted the piece of it for me where you're talking about everyone needs to get paid. It's like, well, everyone needs to get paid if they're actually generating value. And yes. a big piece of the missing the missing piece of this is that everyone sort of acknowledges that all of these, you know, often uncompensated performers are generating value, Mm -hmm. but there's no transparency in the, we don't have a way to measure the economic value that a single painter or hula hoop artist or VJ brings to this, or even for that matter, even the headlining acts, Mm -hmm. like we don't even really know. We know what the, like the kind of venue that they can fill in town you know, we know mm-hmm. how many people they, but that's not a, that's not actually a measure of their draw. And that's not a measure of how much booking that particular artist had to do with the success or lack of success of this particular festival. Mm-hmm. So in a way it feels to me like we need to come up with a whole, like a whole new way, way of measuring everyone's contributions to an event so that they can be properly recognized and compensated and yes. an acknowledgement that you don't just get to like, I've been a live painter for 10 years, but at the same time, I've seen, I, I, he's like kind of conflicted about the fact that like so many people, including admittedly sometimes myself, have used live painting as a way to just sort of like get a free ticket, slide into the event yeah. for free. Yeah, and that's no good. Well, and there, you know, and, and there is a value exchange just in getting that free ticket. There's a value to that, and I think that you can kind of start that as a measurement of like, is that enough mm-hmm. for this role? But then I like what you said about how are they contributing financially of like who else are they bringing to this event? And I thought about this too if you know and I, I think you know there's people that do this, but where you're <laughs> developing ticket codes that actually give that person a commission back for yes. every ticket they sell with their code. you know and I wonder if there's a way that you can do that seamlessly or to just make that really easy because I like that idea of inspiring people to be like, I'm a part of this thing, come to this thing that I'm helping with, but then, you know, they're also getting a little bit more of that ticket directly for getting more people there. I don't know, so that's where it's exciting, of sharing ideas, sharing conversations, of 
where the pattern's going to end up, you know, what's happening across the country, what's happening in these communities on a, you know, nationwide global perspective, what can we learn from each other, what do we have to share and to gain, and through these discussions, what can we solve, you know, what kind of ideas can come up through this together. That's where I'm really excited, and I'm excited about this conversation right now because this is kind of the launching point of many more conversations to come, but I will be on the opposite side. I'll be interviewing all these people, so thank you. Yeah, thank you. This is such a delicious fossil to include uh, <laughs> in the museum. Uh, how can people get a hold of you? you I, you know, so yeah, as the, as the event, uh, as the website gets going, it will be partyprotoolkit.com. It doesn't exist yet, but maybe by the time this is released, it will. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I would like, it will have a portal for people to, you know, tell me what they think is important, that what should be looked at, what should be included, and who I should be interviewing. So I definitely want to have that, you know, feedback opportunity for people. And that's what I'm hoping is that it'll really just catch legs and people will become interested in it, that all of these people who I'm including now will find it useful and viable and something they also want to share. And I think that this is just the start of the project, and I think that in making it multimedia kind of an experience that it has so much opportunity to really evolve as needed, and it doesn't get boxed into one specific framework. Mm. So if you're listening to this, set yourself a calendar reminder to check in on PartyProToolkit.com in, like, December? Uh, probably more like May. May, okay. Yes. <laughs> May 2019, when I graduate. Ooh. Right on. Yes, a lot of work happening between now and then. Yeah, awesome. Melina, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned, because we have some awesome episodes coming up on Future Fossils. But for now, may your now be exquisite, long, and wonderful.